Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Um, so we're starting at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a throne of thorns, a crown of thorns, and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside, his pa- inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you have no power over me if you were not given to you from above. Therefore, no one who handed me over to you is guilty of, of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be, a king, to be a king opposes Caesar. Then Pilate heard this. He brought Jesus out again and sat him on the judge's seat in a palace known as the stove pavement. It was the day of preparation of Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, shouted take him away, take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed over to him to be crucified. So the, to- so the soldiers took, char- took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. There they crucified him, and with him two others, on w- one on each side, Jesus in the middle. And then if you go to page 52 of the booklets, we're going to be reading from verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk uh, of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Now, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have his legs broken and bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it giving testimony, and his testimony is true, 
He knows that he tells the truth and that he testifies so that you may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. No, not one of his bones will be broken. And as the other scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. I'm just going to pray for Steve real quick before he speaks. Um, yeah, Father, just thank you for this, this message. Um, and Father, I just pray that you will speak through Steve today. And I pray that, um, yeah, his words are true um, and that our ears are just ready to receive what he has to say. Amen. Amen. Good afternoon. Nice to be here. Nice to see you all. Um, I don't think there can be any doubt that suffering poses the greatest challenge, uh, both to believers, as Katie shared in her own story, as why things happen and don't happen, and to non-believers who are going, well, I could be a believer, or I could consider being a believer, but because of all the suffering in the world. It can be close to home. Um, someone you know is diagnosed with cancer, or there's a freak car crash, and someone you loved has died. Or it can be more global. The recent and horrific flooding in Pakistan, and seeing all the numbers and the lives that are being affected. Um, or the pandemic. Of course, we all live through that awful suffering. Suffering causes and many people to doubt God or conclude that if he does exist, he must be a moral monster. Stephen Fry, uh, on the famous talk show with Gay Byrne, uh, The Meaning of Life, was one, Gay Byrne's last question to all his guests was, well, if, you, if, if it ends up being true and you meet the Almighty at the pearly gates, what are you going to say to him? And Fry, with remarkable eloquence, said this, why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world so full of injustice and pain, he must be a moral monster. He is evil and capricious. It's a, it's a compelling quote. It went viral. So at a philosophical lef, uh, level, we have to ask this question. Why does an all-powerful and all-loving God allow suffering to continue? If he was all-powerful, he'd, he'd be able to get rid of it. If he was all-loving, he'd want to get rid of it. Seeing as suffering exists, either he's not all-loving or he's not all-powerful, or maybe he doesn't exist at all. That's the philosophical question we're going to grapple with for the first part of the talk. But then at a personal level, can we make sense of our suffering? Can we find hope and strength and courage and peace in the challenges of life? Is there an end to suffering? Is there comfort in our suffering? So let me look at both these angles. Firstly, the philosophical considerations. To the atheist who assumes that suffering disproves the existence of God, we need to consider two big assumptions they are making. The first assumption is that of a moral law. To say there's such a thing as evil is to distinguish that thing from good. To distinguish good from evil, you have to have an objective moral law that works for all of humanity, that everyone can say that is good, that is evil. To create that objective moral law, you have to have an objective moral law giver. But that is the person you're trying to disprove. If you get rid of the objective moral law giver, you get rid of the objective moral law, you get rid of the distinction between right and wrong and good and evil, but then what is your question? It's a big assumption. Now, many people, and this is street-level stuff, and it's, it's, it's understandable, say, well, I don't need a moral lawgiver. And a moral... I just know that I'm trying to alleviate human suffering and trying to do what's right in people's lives. But then you're making another huge assumption. And the assumption is that human life is valuable. We're bothered with suffering because we think humans shouldn't be treated so lightly or, since, or shouldn't have such a harsh life. But why is human life valuable? To quote atheist and Oxford chemistry professor Peter Atkins, we are just a bit of slime on a planet. 
Where does this idea of the sanctity of human life come from? To quote uh, Cambridge philosopher Bertrand Russell, we're just a humanity is just a curious accident in a backwater. When questioned about the topic of suffering, Richard Dawkins said this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, others people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. In other words, the terrible events, such as the devastation of an earthquake, the rape of a young woman, the growth of a malignant cancer, emerge as the consequence of blind, pitiless indifference. I'm not saying the atheist is wrong. I actually commend Dawkins for following through to the logical conclusion of his worldview. But all this talk of the problem of suffering and the sanctity of human life is a myth if there is no God. The distinction between good and evil, the valuing of human life only makes sense if there's a God who makes us in his image, who gives us what is right and wrong to obey. And so that although for many of us suffering challenges our belief in God, the very fact we look to the heavens and say, why? It wasn't supposed to be this way. Why? Who says? Who are you speaking to? Where does this expectation that our life shouldn't be so cruel and full of suffering come from? Have you ever experienced that life? Do you know that life? Why shouldn't the world be full of evil and suffering? Why do you think it's wrong when humans suffer? If we're just a set of chemical reactions, if we're just a collocation of atoms, if there's no bigger story, if we're just a random big bang, if it's all random, no meaning, no overarching story, that when you die, you rot. We're just a bit of slime on a planet. We're a curious accident in a backwater. We're dancing to DNA's music. Why are we valuable? Why should we care? And in that sense, we're no different to the trees. They're just a collocation of atoms. And we chop trees down all the time. We might have evolved a bit more, but like we just chop humans down too, can't we? Here's my point. The very fact that Stephen Fry gets so angry, the very fact that we look to the heavens and cry out why, reveals that somewhere deep down in all of us, we believe someone is, not, is there. We believe that the world we live in isn't the world we should, have lived, should live in. And we want an answer to how it's going to get fixed. Maybe our reaction to evil and suffering, far from being evidence against God, is actually evidence for God. You get rid of God, you get rid of the problem, and you just have to get on with it. And maybe you'll do that, but then you trivialize the suffering, and your question is redundant. C.S. Lewis famously converted from atheism to theism on this argument, the moral argument around suffering and he says this in his book Mere Christianity. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? A man feels wet when he falls into water because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. 
Of course, I could have given up my private idea of ju- my idea of justice by saying it was nothing more than a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God would collapse too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to meet my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. It's too simple. And he says elsewhere, if you, if you really are the product of a materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home here? Do the fish complain of the sea for being wet? This came home to me a few years ago. I was, I was driving up the N11 after work with a colleague, and he, he, he was giving me a... T- he can't believe that I believe my traditional doctrines and that I hold to the Bible as the word of God, and he was giving me a tirade of questions, including the question of suffering and all the problems in our world. And, and often these questions went, and I was trying to navigate them. And, and at one point I said, listen, I'll answer your questions if you'll just answer me one question. What's wrong with the world? We drove on a bit more in silence, the umdenard. What's wrong with it? Why is the world a mess? Lack of education, lack of technology, lack of communication, lack of awareness. Like, what, what's, what's wrong with it? And he said, I, I don't know. I've, I've never really thought about what's wrong with the world. How do you answer the question? You see, if you don't believe in God, and we're all here by chance, and there's a process of blind genetic replication, and the fittest survive and those less fit don't survive, why do we expect this world not to be cruel, harsh, random, and unjust? It is just random. There is no purpose, no design, no evil, no good. But we all know something is wrong. We sense it, we feel it. Earthquake, AIDS, homelessness, miscarriages, famines, babies dying, war, terrorism, paedophilia, murder, rape, coronavirus. It's a dark world. We hope and imagine for a world without disease, suffering, and death, and evil. None of us have ever experienced or known that world. Yet deep inside our consciousness, we sense it's the world we should inhabit. As C.S. Lewis helpfully remarked, it's like a fish continually being surprised at the wetness of the water. Where does this sense of something being wrong with the world come from? What are we comparing it to? So intellectually, I think you have greater problems around the question of suffering if you don't believe in God. How do you account for suffering in evil not being trivial? How do you differentiate right from wrong, good from evil? How do you make sense of the value of human life? How do you make sense that this is the world that we're not supposed to live in? Christianity may not have all the knockdown arguments to the problem of suffering, but I believe it's the last one standing. And there's two reasons why I think that. The first one is because we have a coherent worldview given us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 of a world that was perfect, where there was no death and no suffering and no evil. That was the world we should have inhabited and we want our ancestors once did. But that world went wrong as we turned from God and then death and sin and evil came into our world. That makes sense of our experience and our assumptions. And philosophically, if you have a God big and powerful enough to get mad at for the suffering in the world, you have a God who's big and powerful enough to have reasons for the suffering that you can't understand. 
You can't say, I cannot see any reason why God is not stopping the evil and suffering, and because I can't see any reason, he mustn't exist. Come on, who are you? The all-seeing, all-knowing, all-wise God? Now, if you have a God that's big enough and powerful enough to be mad at for the suffering, you have one that's big and powerful enough to have reasons that you could never understand this side of heaven for the suffering. But here's the second reason. And so we move to the personal aspect. Christianity may not have all the knockdown arguments to the problem of suffering, but in my opinion, it's the last one standing because at the heart of Christianity, there is something that no religion or worldview has, something that's unique to the Christian faith, something that speaks personally to our suffering, something that gives us resources for our suffering, and it's a crucified God. The answer God gives when you cry out, why God, why, is his son on a cross shouting, why God, why? We've just read about it in John chapter 19. The Christian message is our God entered our world of suffering. He took on flesh and bones. He experienced everything we experience, all suffering and death. He was crucified, he was mocked. And yet interestingly, his suffering did not lead to despair and loneliness. It led to hope, to comfort, and to peace. If we're all agreed that intellectually we have a challenge when it comes to suffering, how does the crucified God give us resources to handle our suffering? Stephen Fry says, why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? He must be a moral monster. He's evil and capricious. This terrible caricature of God is smashed to smithereens by the cross. That's not who he is. It's not. It can't be. He felt the physical pain as the cat of nine tails was impaled on his back. He knew unbearable thirst as his tongue stuck to the top of his mouth. He winced as nails were hammered through his wrists. He felt emotional pain of being mocked at, laughed at. Did you read it in the passage? Spat upon. Is there anything more humiliating than being spat upon? You read the gospel accounts, Jesus is spat upon at least twice. They laughed at him. His, his accusers humiliated him. His best friends abandoned him. But worst of all, he felt a relational and spiritual pain. John 19 says he thirsted, this cosmic thirst, as he faced judgment. All the other gospels says he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could have remained distant and far off, but he came and he suffered. And that has huge implications for our suffering. Let me give you three. Firstly, we have comfort. We're not alone. You know, in the moment of pain and suffering, as a mother holds her dying baby, or as a, fa as a son watches his father lose the fight against cancer, all the eloquent words spoken, all the books written on suffering could not matter less in that moment. What you want is someone there to comfort. And not just anyone, someone that's gone through what you're going through who can empathise. Have you lost a child? So has God. Have you been rejected and isolated? So has God. You suffered loneliness? So has God. Have you wanted to give up? So did God. 
Have you been treated unfairly? So has God. Have you experienced all the frailties and frustrations of physical and mental health and disease and sickness in this world? So has our God. From the depths of a Nazi death camp, Corrie ten Boom, a survivor of the Holocaust, wrote, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. He's gassed in Auschwitz. He's destroyed in the Indian Ocean tsunami. He's infected and isolated during COVID-19. Every tear we shed, if you were here last week, becomes his tears as he cries at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. It doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't mean those agonies and frustrations don't continue to live with us. But it means he understands the God of the universe who made all things understands. He understands. In other words, I may not know what the answer is, why God allows us suffering, but I know what the answer isn't. It cannot be that he doesn't love me. The cross shows that. We get comfort We are not alone. Secondly, we get hope. The future is bright. Not only did God enter the suffering of the cross, three days later he rose from the dead and he beat death, humanity's greatest enemy. The resurrection assures me that one day the broken creation will be completely fixed as God restores things to how it was and how we sense it should be. Not only is the crucified God a unique idea in all of history to Christianity, So is the resurrection. No one else has ever taught anyone about the resurrection. And it means that this world will be fixed. The New Testament clearly portrays heaven as a real place. It would be better to call it the new creation because God's going to restore this world fully and renew it completely. There'll be no tears, no pain, no crying, no mourning, no anxiety, no stress, no mental health challenges, no relational breakdowns, no war, no COVID-19, no rising cost of living, no sadness, loneliness, anguish, heartbreak, no greed, injustice, death, disease, exploitation. They won't be there. There'll be joy and laughter. There'll be feasting and wine There'll be the perfect enjoyment of all God's good gifts to the best of our abilities. There'll be harmony in all relationships. There'll be peace. In other words, the resurrection tells me three things about the afterlife. It tells me there's consolation for everything I've lost. There's comfort. It tells me there's restoration for everything I've lost. I'm going to get it back somehow. But it tells me more there's resurrection. I'm going to get everything I'd ever even hoped for times a billion and more. It's going to be mine. One day, it's going to be glorious. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, The Problem of Pain, put it like this. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Even the challenges, things of this life will somehow be redeemed for a greater glory that we experience. And Mother Teresa who did not live an insulated life, put it like this. In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth, a life full of the most atrocious torture on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And she didn't say that after not seeing terrible things. We get comfort. I'm not alone. We get hope. There's an afterlife of consolation, restoration, and resurrection, complete satisfaction beyond my wildest dreams. But along with comfort and hope, the cross gives us 
peace. It's not all wasted. And this is what Katie brought out in her story, a peace that transcends understanding. If you're a secular person and you only believe in the existence of a material universe, if you believe that when you die you face oblivion, there's no afterlife, there's no God, there's no greater meaning to your life than what you make of this life, well, no wonder we panic when suffering comes because suffering puts our whole meaning of life in jeopardy. Historically, all religions, worldviews and cultures said that the meaning of life was something outside of this life. A God, an afterlife, a reincarnation, a state of nirvana. It wasn't just Christianity. All religions, cultures and worldviews located our meaning of life, not in this life, but in something else. And that meant it had a way of equipping its members for suffering. Suffering could actually enhance your meaning of life. It could help you discover a deeper meaning to life. But our modern secular culture is the least able to equip its members for suffering because we have no resources to draw on. If the meaning of your life is bound up in this life, when you suffer, it cannot enhance your life. It can only take away your meaning. So no wonder we panic. No wonder our world is more fearful than it's ever been in the face of death. We don't have any resources to handle it. If your meaning for life is success and money and health and relationships, family, environment, social, political causes, romance, work, career, kids, a nice house, whatever it is, if that is your meaning in life, suffering can only destroy it. But if your meaning in life is to know and to love and to enjoy God now and forever, then suffering could actually help you know that more and discover that more. It's well documented that our modern secular culture has the least resources to equip its members for suffering, yet we live in extraordinary amounts of comfort in, West, in Ireland compared to most people in the world. We react with far greater anxiety to suffering than the majority of world history who had so much less than us. As a Christian, I can have a peace because I know that in all the chaos, God has a purpose. He's working something for good and it's not all wasted. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know for certain? Think of the cross. No one thought anything good was happening. His friends abandoned him. All the disciples fled. The Romans were winning. The Messiah was dying. The enemies had triumphed. All hope was gone. All was lost. No one saw anything marvelous at the cross. And yet God was doing something more marvelous than any of us could ever have believed. He was opening heaven and eternity and restoring all things but in that moment of suffering no one saw anything good if God can bring a glory far more far greater than any of us could imagine out of a suffering far more terrible than anything we'll experience in the death of his son he can do the same in your life and mine but we may not be able to understand it as we go through it but we can have peace that he hasn't abandoned us. It's not wasted. He's working for our good. Katie talked about a, a piece in her stress as she was bullied. She talked uh, about uh, growing as a Christian and that wonderful poem there at the end when she says, I can make sense that I can't have all the answers to it all, but I have a peace and I know he's with me. The scriptures give us intellectual answers a coherent worldview, but the cross gives us personal answers 
a comfort, a hope, and a peace. The cross doesn't solve the problem of suffering. There's still mystery. We can't get our heads around it this side of heaven. But it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Climbing Calvary's hill with Jesus gives us resources to find comfort, hope, and peace in suffering. We have, friends, a crucified God. John Stott, I finish with this quote. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nailed to hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in light of his. There was still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world as ours. Let's take a moment to be quiet. I'll invite Craig back and the band, and we'll just ponder in our seats just for 30 seconds. Just take a moment to still your hearts around some of the things we've thought, and then I'll pray, and we'll respond in song. But let's take a moment to be quiet and consider our crucified God. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I want to pray for those who have those intellectual questions around suffering or other related issues. That today and as they go away from today, they would realize there are rays of light into this topic that give us sense intellectually. And Lord, as we grapple and as we struggle, uh, we pray you give us answers and give us an understanding on an intellectual level. But we pray more, Lord, this is much more of an emotional, personal level of an issue, of finding it hard to wrestle with you in unanswered prayer, in the feeling of being abandoned, in seeing tragedy in our world, in, in not being able to fix it, in not being able to really comprehend it, in seeing all the evil that we see on our TV screens and, and closer to home. And Lord, we, we struggle with those things. We thank you, Jesus, that you understand our pain. We pray that even now, those that are finding this so real and raw to them would know you comforting them and giving them that peace beyond all understanding. We thank you that you shed 
tears with us when we cry. We thank you for that comfort you offer. We thank you for peace that it's not wasted. Even awful things that somehow in your great plan will be weaved into a tapestry where on the back it looks a disaster but on the front is a beautiful tapestry. Help us to hold on in faith to, to that hope that you will weave all of our stories and all the suffering into a greater glory. And we thank you for heaven, for the new creation. We thank you that this world is not where we truly and finally belong. We thank you that our citizenship is in heaven and we're secure. And we thank you that in our, in, in, our, in our true home in heaven, death will have no hold over any of us. And when we're free from all the ailments of this life, of physical sickness and of sin and of, of frustration and within relationships and break and mental health, and all, Lord, we just thank you that one day it'll all be gone. And so help us now to fix our eyes on, on that day, knowing that our present suffering will not be comparing to the glory, will not be worth comparing with the glory that we will receive that day. If anything, Lord, may this topic of suffering help us realize this world is passing and to live for you and live for eternity. So as we respond in song, I pray, Holy Spirit, comfort hearts, bring hope and bring your peace. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.